please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. by experience that preaching is a difficult thing. If you were to ask me after most sermons whether or not I was satisfied with the sermon, you'd almost hear me you'd hear me almost always say the same thing. Part yes and part no. I am uh, I will leave this sermon no doubt today satisfied with the doctrine that we looked into the scripture and we saw what it intended to teach. And that we were able to pull from it something useful with respect to practice. But am I going to leave today satisfied that I communicated in a, uh, the truth in a manner that was well suited to the matter? Almost never. Uh, this morning we are going to be considering the glory of God. And as I struggled through the preparation of this sermon, I was reminded of a, of a word that I learned in college, a very useful word, but one you don't hear much uh, in our day and age. The word is ineffable. Some things, some realities, some truths defy our ability to speak them. That's what ineffable means. It's an unspeakable thing. And I find that as I try to communicate to you something of the glory of the great God of heaven, I find that I come to the limits of what I'm able to express in speech. So I'm very glad for this text this morning because it does far more. The revelation of God through the utterance of the Spirit is far better at these things than I am. Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The glory of our God. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. And one sat on the throne. And he that was to, he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And on the throne, and out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which were the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. 
You will remember we have entered into the third and final section of the book. It is by far the longest section. We have passed from the vision of the things that are, the condition of the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and we have now come to the vision of things which must be hereafter. Chapter 4 to the end of the book. We have here a vision of spiritual things, an unveiling of spiritual realities that are normally hidden from the eyesight of men. If you will remember, the last time we were together, we were finally able to draw a conclusion. John is peering into the heavenly holy of holies in a visionary experience. He is looking into the Holy of Holies uh, through the holy place. You will remember that the tabernacle of the living God had two parts to it. Uh, When you first entered, you would have been looking into the holy place with its um, altar of incense, its seven-branched candlestick, and the table of showbread. And then there would have been a great and beautiful veil in front of you. Beyond that was the Holy of Holies, the resting place of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, The normal priest would not have been able to ever enter into that place. Only the high priest. And that only once in the year. But here the Holy of Holies is in view. The divine throne, the Ark, is observed by John surrounded by an emerald rainbow. In the holy place, there are arrayed 24 thrones for the ministrations of the 24 priest kings. They are there ministering to God. Um, You remember the priests in ancient times ministered by 24 courses, led by 24 chief men. And so here we have a representation of all of the visible church ministering constantly to the great God of heaven. And we saw that there is here also the menorah, the spirit, the dispersed light of the church, illuminating the people of God and radiating out from the people of God into a dark, lost, and dying world. This morning we are going to look at just one image It has proven to be a difficult one in the history of interpretation. Verse 6, the first part. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. I'm going to try to uh, make this scene just as vivid as I can. Because it is striking and it's very easy to, to read past this. There's a great throne that is set, and upon the throne is, uh, this very much approximates the language of Ezekiel, where he he will say something like, and there was a likeness of the appearance of. It's uh, like dim analogies that he's using to describe what he sees, and we have a similar thing. We have the divine presence represented by Jasper, which was of a great many different varieties and colors, and the sardius stone, or the sardine stone, which was red. So imagine, as it were, on this great throne, 
in the midst of the Shekinah glory, something like a cloud you see uh, radiating out of there, a great many colors, almost all of the colors of the rainbow, but a certain predominance of red. And this great throne is surrounded by a green rainbow. Perhaps all of the colors of the rainbow, but a predominance of green. Around this great throne, there are 24 other thrones. And on those, there are priest kings seated in the glorious apparel of white with golden crowns upon their head. And there is a uh, seven-branched golden candlestick. The language of the Old Testament is most pure gold, burning brightly with light. Glorious scene, to be sure. And in front of the throne, or before the throne, there is a glassy sea, likened unto crystal. So imagine all of this. We don't know exactly what this glassy sea is at this point. But imagine, as it were, a, an expanse of glass uh, reflecting and refracting all of these colors. Certainly a striking uh, visual image brings us uh, to the question what is this glassy sea that is likened to the appearance of crystal there have been many proposals in the history of exegesis but I will focus on two that it seemed to have been the most significant also representing something of my own thinking on this image over the past ten years or so First, some have thought this to be a representation of the brazen laver. If you remember, before you entered into the holy place in the old tabernacle, there was a great big bronze uh, vat filled with water where both the priests and the sacrifices would be rinsed and cleansed. And this brazen laver was sometimes called a sea. When... Uh, Solomon was constructing the temple. It said he made a molten sea, ten cubits from the one brim to the other. This was the molten, here described as a molten sea, the brazen laver or its counterpart in the temple. And as I mentioned, this laver was used for ceremonial washing of the priests themselves as they would go in to minister before the Lord as well as uh, the sacrifices. Interpreters are very well agreed on the significance of the brazen laver. It is an image of Christ's blood, cleansing both us and our worship. Certainly a beautiful and a powerful image. And some interpreters have even noted how uh, harmoniously this image would fit in here. We have had this uh, Image of the Holy Spirit, here described as the seven spirits, because his uh, uh, distributive power and activity in the churches is here represented. So here, uh, uh, not the spirit simply considered in himself as person, but as active in the churches is primarily in view. The sanctifying spirit. And so interpreters have looked at this and said how fitting it is to have then an image of our justification coupled with an image of our sanctification. 
our cleansing in the blood of Jesus Christ necessary for the acceptance of our persons and our worship. Notice, however, that the sea is not described as being made of brass. It's described here as being glassy and likened unto crystal. Some have said that this is to perfect, as it were, the image of the purifying and cleansing power of Christ's blood. Later on in the book, we will see that the um, saints will wash their garments white in the blood of the Lamb. Certainly a strange image. You imagine taking a garment and dipping it in blood, and yet it's drawn out white, pure, clean, spotless. And so some have said that this is a corresponding image here, not a sea of brass, but a uh, pure and purifying laver, pure and purifying contents. This was the interpre- interpretive position of James Durham and a great many others. And I would say that if you, um, if you adopted this interpretation, you wouldn't, it wouldn't run you into other errors in the book. And it's certainly not an unprofitable meditation and consideration. However, there are a couple of problems here that give pause. First of all, the labor is not in the holy place, but in the courtyard. So this is a consideration. Is it possible that um, that the labor has been moved inside to the holy place? Or is it more fitting that it be retained on the outside as far as its symbolic significance? And also in the next place, how convincing is it the the replacement of bronze to glass? How convincing has the explanation been? I was altogether convinced at the reorganization until I had a counter scheme proposed that seemed to do better justice. I read this for the first time in E.B. Eliot, but this is an interpretation that goes all the way back to Gamaris. Uh, you might want to associate him with the Synod of Dort. He was uh, perhaps the, the great opponent of Jacob Arminius in the, in the Dutch church. Uh, and it runs all the way through to E.B. Eliot through Vitringa, who was in the 18th century probably the great expositor of the Apocalypse. This interpretive position is that this is uh, something like a glassy pavement or firmament, only visible before the throne because around the throne there are other things sitting upon it that would conceal it from view. This is the space that's not occupied by the 24 thrones. So if you imagine, as we we mentioned earlier, the 24 thrones uh, in something of a semicircle around God's throne, They leave exposed to view in front of the divine throne the pavement, the paved work, or if you will, the firmament or the expanse. You say, well, why would this be a stronger interpretation? Turn back in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 1. I want to pick up in verse 22, but first observe that 
In verse 22, we, we are following immediately upon the description of the four living creatures. It's very interesting to me, the correspondence here, because in verse 6, we have this sea of glass. If Eliot is right, this expanse, this glassy expanse. And then the description of the four living creatures. So there's a coupling here that uh, is very suggestive. Ezekiel chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. And the likeness of the firmament upon the heads of the living creature was as the color of the terrible crystal stretched forth over their heads above. A couple of things to note here before we go on. It says here, the likeness of the firmament, in Hebrew, rakia, which is the very language used in um, Genesis chapter 1 of the expanse of heaven. It's, a, it's an expanded or stretched out place called there in Genesis 1 the firmament. If we were to render it into more contemporary English, we would probably render it something like expanse an extended or stretched out place. It, it's derived from the language of metalwork, in, interestingly enough. You would take with a, a piece of metal and you would hammer it out to flatten it out, to make a flat expanse or space. The heavens are talked about very much in that same way. So here we have the, have the lightness of the firmament or a rakia, an expanse that is sitting upon the heads of these living creatures. But notice here the color of it. It's likened unto terrible, uh, awe-inspiring, breathtaking crystal. Very much like our uh, glassy sea that is likened unto crystal. But what is it that we're looking at? What is it that is above the heads of these uh, these uh, creatures, or creature, depending upon what verse you look at in Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1, full of great mysteries. Very difficult. Mm -hmm. Verse 23. And under the firmament were their wings straight, the one toward the other. Every two had two which covered on this side, and every one had two which covered on that side their bodies. And when they went, I heard the noise, the noise of their wings, like the noise of great waters, as the voice of the Almighty, the voice of speech, as the noise of an host. When they stood, they let down their wings. And there was a voice from the firmament that was above their heads, and they stood and had let down their wings. I just wanted to point out here, because this becomes significant for the interpretation. Notice that the four living creatures are below the expanse. God is going to be seen enthroned above it. They are below it. These, uh, these angels, and I can't go very much into this, appear to be ministers of his providence. He issues commands, and they're portrayed as going out like lightning and returning. They issue another command, and they go forth like lightning and return. And they are portrayed as having wheels that appear to be the wheels of providence. So these are the angels that are very much involved in uh, the execution of God's providential commands to make sure that they are implemented in the earth. You see this also in uh, 
Daniel as well, the, the uh, involvement of angels in God's providential dealings with men, particularly in the uh, administration of kingdoms and the rising and falling of kingdoms. Verse 26. And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above upon it. So imagine, what, what color is a sapphire stone? Blue. Some of them are uh, purpley. Uh, so here you have a throne that is blue, a very deep blue, sitting upon um, a firmament that is likened unto crystal. And the effect of all of this would be as, you, as your eyesight approached the throne, sitting upon this expanse, the crystal would look more and more blue, reflecting and reflecting the color of the throne itself. And as you moved out away from it, it would, would appear uh, more clear. And um, there's an appearance of one sitting upon that throne. Notice here, the likeness as the appearance of a man. So here it's something like an appearance of a man upon it. But notice this color. Remember in our, our description, uh, jasper, multicolored, and uh, the sardine stone, the redness, the fieriness of a ruby. And I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire round about within it from the appearance of his loins even upward, and from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and it had brightness round about. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spake. Notice here also there is the rainbow that is uh, around the uh, around the throne. So you notice here that there is uh, evidently a relationship between Ezekiel's vision and John's vision. The red figure upon the throne, the surrounding rainbow, the presence of the four living creatures. But here we don't see a brazen laver. We see a glassy or crystalline expanse. Uh, beneath the throne of God. One other text to look at. Turn back to Exodus chapter 24. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 24, beginning in verse 9. Remember the context. The Exodus event has already taken place. The Lord in Exodus 20 has delivered the Ten Commandments. And in chapters 21 through 23, the uh, terms of the covenant between God and his people. So he had given them uh, a large section of law, both moral and judicial for the most part, even though there are some ceremonial elements. Chapter 24, uh, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu 
And the seven, 70 elders of Israel are going up to meet with Jehovah, at least part of the way up the mountain. Verse 9, Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. This is a very interesting de- description, and you remember I said earlier that uh, if we just take the images as they're given in Ezekiel, you have this sapphire stone, this blue stone, and a firmament, a paved work underneath, but it's clear like crystal, clear like the heavens, and the heavens reflecting the blue of the sea. You see. But here it's the sapphire stone, the blueness that uh, is reflected and refracted by um, this crystalline expanse. But as you would move out from it, you would see more clearness, which appears to be represented here. The paperwork was of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. So here, both blue and clear is the is the description. And so E.B. Elliot, putting all of these things together, sees these images to be very much conjoined and explained by basically, you have a crystalline expanse, a clear expanse. It is the pavement of the uh, divine throne room but the sapphire stone uh, bleeds down into it the light of it is reflected there what is the significance of this if this be the right interpretation and after after fuller consideration I hardly have any doubt that this is the right understanding of the glassy sea question would be what is its significance And I think that there are at least three parts that we can draw from it. First, God's throne is set above the heavens. The firmament is the heaven, as it were, and God's throne is set above that, or he's higher than the heaven of heavens. Do you remember that is the description that uh, Solomon gives at at the building of the temple? He said that he recognized that although they had made this temple, that God did not dwell in it and a dwelling made with human hands, but even the very heaven of heavens could not contain him. God is exalted above the heavens. This highlights God's glory and his transcendence. Children, this is a very good word to learn, transcendence. God is above all of the created things. He's not... um, Contained by creation. He's not limited by creation. He is, not only is he present to all of the things that he's made, but he is above all of them. Infinitely glorious above them as the creator. Uh, A second uh, possible significance. It is interesting that in the Ezekiel vision, when the angels are contemplated as ministers of God's providence, they are below the firmament. But where do we find the people of God in Revelation chapter 4? They are above it and upon it with God himself. So it is true that God is infinitely exalted above the creature and therefore infinitely exalted above us, even the redeemed saints. But he draws us near to himself. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. 
This, of course, is the, a very famous passage to all Calvinists. In the first three, you have the total depravity of man set forth and their inability to do anything spiritually good. And then verse 4, you have, you have the uh, presentation of the remedy, which is not man pulling himself up by his bootstraps and doing better, but God interposing on behalf of his elected children, those upon whom he had set his love before the foundation of the world. Verse 4, the God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So let me ask you, based on this passage, where do we sit He has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see here uh, in you see in Revelation in picture what Paul describes didactically that our interest is in heaven, although he is infinitely above us. He brings us near to himself in our union with Christ Jesus. This is figured in, in several ways in, um, in the Old Testament types and symbols. You remember, if you were a common everyday Israelite, you could enter into the tabernacle courtyard, but you would only go as far as the brazen altar, and there your progress would stop. You would never walk, walk around that and make your way over to the brazen laver, and you would certainly never enter into the tent of God. Even the Levites... Before they took that tent down, the priests would go in and cover all of those things because the Levites were never to see them, never to handle them directly. They were to be covered and then carried by the poles that were inserted. This was to communicate one particular truth, which was the transcendence and holiness of God, his otherness, his separateness. But... When the high priest would go in and minister in that place, he would be wearing his priestly garments and upon his chest would be the names of the twelve tribes of Israel engraven in the twelve stones. And upon his shoulders and the two onyx stones as well, the names of the people of God. So that even while with one symbol he's communicating God's otherness, his holiness, his transcendence, his separateness, yet he brings us near in the mediator. Christ Jesus is uh, infinitely dear and infinitely near to the Father and we are seated with Him and in Him. We will not go wrong if we think of the Lord Jesus Christ clothed in those high priestly robes with our names emblazoned upon Him and that He ever lives in that place to make intercession for us. So in one way, in a carnal manner, we are seated in Warrington, Virginia. And viewed from a particular point of view, that's altogether true. 
but with respect to spiritual realities, and if I might, ultimate reality. We are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, and we have been brought near to God in our mediator. So this is a uh, second possible significance of the fact that the people of God are seated above the firmament in this picture, seated with God, near to the throne, ministering constantly to him. And then a third significance, inasmuch as this is a sea of glass, the heavens are transparent, transparent to him, and the goings on in the earth below are open and evident. You remember Paul says to the Hebrew Christians, all things are naked and open before the God with whom we have to do. I wanted to take up the singing of Psalm 18 this morning. I did that advisedly because when sinful man looks up to heaven in the contemplation of God, he seems obscured in a dark and thick cloud. And it's very difficult for us to trace his ways or his going. It's very difficult for us to see his glory. But we ought not to imagine that from his point of view, the heavens are also cloudy. The heavens are open. Our doings are open before him. And this is very important uh, for all of us, but children in particular, you must learn to think this way. A lot of times you'll think, if I can uh, get away with something and mommy and daddy don't see what I do, then, well, I've really gotten away with it. I've pulled one off. But God always sees. He always sees the things that we do. Even our very hearts are naked and open before him. By way of use, um, I thought we would take up uh, magnifying the glory of our God. And I thought we would do this in uh, song. As I mentioned at the beginning, my words frequently fail in communicating these things in a suitable way. But we have spiritual words or Holy Spirit words for meditating upon these things. And so let us rise and sing first. Psalm 97, verses 1 through 7, to the tune Irish. Psalm 97, verses 1 through 7, to the tune Irish. 